So we're going to be sharing in communion today, and you think, now wait a minute, don't we always do that on the first Sunday of the month, and uh, isn't this the last Sunday of the month? And you're right. And, uh, uh, you know, in the Bible, Jesus is the one who instituted uh, communion at what we call the Last Supper, the last meal that he had together with his disciples just hours before he was arrested and tried and then crucified. And he said, this is my body. All of you eat of it. This is my uh, blood, which is poured out on your behalf. All of you uh, drink of it. Do this to remember me. So the church of Jesus Christ has done that faithfully for 2,000 years in obedience to our Savior and our God, Jesus Christ. And so he didn't say how often to do this. And our habit has been to do it on the first Sunday of the month. Some churches do it every week. Um, but as we've worked our way through the book of Matthew, looking at the, the different passages, we came upon this one today. And uh, somebody didn't get them lined up to get it on the first Sunday of the month. So I said, well, well let's, <laughs> that's my fault. That we, uh, <laughs> well, we are making confession today, aren't we? Um, so... Um, we said, well, let's move communion over to this Sunday so that it lines up with the scripture that talks about it. So Pastor Alistair Begg, I was listening to some things he had to say on this topic, and he explained it this way. What you have in the Bible is the truth of God verbally. And what you have in the ordinances or the sacraments is the truth of God visibly. That uh, we're telling the story and we're showing our love by uh, receiving his uh, broken body and his blood that's poured out for us. So let me back up a little bit. Because we believe that God, who created the whole world, has a plan for every person alive. He knew you before you were born. The Bible says he watched you be formed in your mother's womb. He knew the day you were going to be born. He knew where you would live. He knew what day you're, he knows what day you're going to die. He created people to live here in this world, and he gave people the gift of free choice. And you can choose to love him or not to love him. But God knew that people wouldn't be able to keep this world perfect forever. So he already, before the foundation of the world, he had determined he would send a savior to rescue and redeem humanity from sin by paying the price for sin so it could be eradicated. And the price is death of an innocent. Innocent blood had to be shed. And so God sent God into this world as a person named Jesus. So Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin, your sin and my sin. And Jesus was recognized by some people in his lifetime for who he truly was. And that is God in human flesh. And these people fully devoted themselves to loving him and following Jesus. We're in that group. Most of us here in the room. And God's plan was that Jesus would pay the price with his own life and die. And three days later, he would come back from the dead to demonstrate God's power over death and that the bill had been paid. Then he's going to band together the followers of Jesus into local churches and empower them with God's spirit to take Jesus to the world, to share his truth, to serve in his name in, with compassion, to love like Jesus loves. And that's what we're about. Someday he's going to gather all the fully devoted followers of Jesus into heaven from all nations, from all generations, from all over the world, people who have already died and uh, people who are alive. And they will, we will all come together to celebrate forever in the presence of our Lord, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. So Jesus coming to earth to live and to love and, uh, and then to die on our behalf is, is part of God's plan. In fact, Jesus is the centerpiece of God's plan. So we're picking up this story here in Matthew 26, and Jesus has 
already, he's had his whole ministry for about three years where he was doing miracles. It would attract attention. It would give him an opportunity to speak and to preach and to tell uh, stories and about God and about how God is, does his uh, thinking and uh, how, how God uh, thinks. And he's gathering with a few of his friends here, but he's, he's concluded all that. He's finished all the teaching. He's finished all the miracles. He's in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the feast of Passover. And he also knows that this is going to be the time that God is going to use in his life for him to be the sacrificial uh, lamb of God, the, uh, the atoning sacrifice. And so Early in Matthew 26, he's there in the area. There's a little town named Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, up on the Mount of Olives. And it was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so when you raise somebody from the dead, you become a celebrity. And, and, and so Jesus is back there in town having dinner at a man's house named Simon uh, the leper. Can't help but wonder if it's kind of a thank you dinner to Jesus for uh, bringing Lazarus back from uh, the grave. Pastor Eric talked about this event last week, how during dinner, Lazarus' sister Mary, with deep gratitude in her heart for Jesus, uh, for bringing her brother back to life, and for everything Jesus has meant to her family, she comes to the dinner and she anoints Jesus with very expensive perfume. It was extravagant. It was lavish. It was beyond generous. She, she poured it all over. It probably was her life savings. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, you know, when somebody puts on that much perfume, you can smell them coming from a long ways away. Thank you for not doing that, by the way. But um, Jesus would have smelled like this at the Last Supper. He would have smelled like this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He would have smelled like this when he was arrested. He would have smelled like this when he stood before Pilate. Everybody, what's that smell? And you know what I'm saying? They would have had the, the aroma of, of, of Mary's gift and, uh, to Jesus. She gave Jesus her most cherished treasure. She recognized that Jesus was a treasure in her life. She worshiped him with her time and her talents and her all. Her generosity is over the top, just, just like Jesus's is. And her actions were immediately criticized by Judas and the other disciples going, why wasn't this you know, expensive gift sold and the money given to the poor? Like they're sounding really really uh, you know, spiritual, really religious here. And, and, and so Jesus commended her, but then he said to the critics, if you want to do something for the poor, you're always going to have the poor. There's, a, there's opportunity. You just go take an opportunity and do something for the poor. Mary has prepared me for my burial. Now I want you to contrast with me for a minute, Mary and Judas. Here, Judas is one of the 12 disciples. He's walked with Jesus for three years. He's been on the inner circle. He's been there for every miracle. He's been there for every talk. He's been there for every experience, like uh, Peter walking on the water or the feeding of the 5,000. He's, he's, he's been part of every discussion with the disciples. He's the designated treasurer of the group, which... I think was quite a distinct honor because you've got Matthew who probably had his CPA and in fact had had a previous career as a tax collector in the group, but instead they have chosen Judas to be the treasurer. And Judas has publicly tried to look the part of loving Jesus. But after this dinner, he goes privately to Jesus' enemies and he strikes a deal. He sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver into the hands of the enemies and he begins searching for a time and an opportunity to betray Jesus, for Jesus to get arrested. I mean, Judas, look at him. He, he looks so close to Jesus. He's one of the close friends. 
Jesus has done so much for him, and he looks the part of the faithful disciple, but his heart was far from God. He had his own plan, what he thought was going to help him get ahead. And to do that, he had to sacrifice his relationship with Jesus, and it cost him everything, and it gained him nothing. See, people don't always respond appropriately to uh, forgiveness or to generosity. I mean, look at Judas. He's got his own agenda. He thought Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was right on that, but he jumped to the conclusion that this meant Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and somehow become king in Jerusalem. And four times on their walk to Jerusalem, Jesus had explained to the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer, to be arrested. I I will, uh, will be put to death in Jerusalem. And they just don't seem to get it. That Jesus' primary purpose is coming into this world to die for the sin of the world. It's that serious with God. Dying and becoming king, you can't do both. And Judas figured out, that's not my plan. He didn't take the next thought of, that's God's plan. Am I going to submit to God's plan or am I going to work my own plan? And last week, Pastor Eric challenged all of us, get in on the plan of God. It's the only one that's going to last forever. So look at verse 17. On the first day of, of Matthew 26, on the first day of unleavened bread, that's the beginning of the feast of Passover, it's eight days long, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where would you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say, to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now this begins, I realized, probably the day that is the most documented 24-hour period of Jesus' entire life. It starts here with the Passover meal that, that evening, you know, start with the preparations in the afternoon and then the, the meal that night, and then they walked down, uh, took a little walk, went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is praying there, and then he got arrested, and then he got taken to, uh, to the high priest's house where there was a, kind of a holding area, and then he gets uh, uh, put on trial all through the night, and then he's scourged and condemned to death, and then he's hung on the cross early in the morning, and uh, then he... Uh, is on the cross for about six hours, and after he dies, he's buried in a, a borrowed tomb. And that's, that's the story of those 24 hours. But there, in the Bible, there are four different biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of them tell some of the details of that day. So some of the Gospels tell us that the two disciples that Jesus commissioned to do this, getting the meal ready, was Peter and John. And he told them, follow the man carrying the water jar, which was usually a woman's job to carry the water jar. Often a man would carry like a water bag that where he would, so he could have some to drink. She's carrying enough in the jar, of course, to take care of the family. And uh, you have to wonder if Jesus quietly pulled these two aside and commissioned them to go do this job to keep the location quiet from Judas so Judas wouldn't be able to lay his plans to have Jesus arrested prematurely. Jesus wanted the man who owned the house to know. He wanted to be quoted saying, my time is at hand. My time is at hand. Timing. God has a plan that goes way back, and it's predicted over and over and over in the Old Testament. And there are fragments here and there, little pieces that you can put together that says, God has a time, and he has a plan, and he's working his plan. And Jesus, at other times in his ministry, had said, my time has not yet come. But this time he says, my time is at hand. God's timing is never late. If you're waiting for something to happen in your life, think, God, I wish you would hurry up. Just keep praying. 
Stay patient. Keep working God's plan. God is never late. So when they got to dinner, the Gospel of John tells us there was a problem. In their culture, you'd get there, somebody would have a basin of water and would wash your feet because they would get dusty walking on the roads. Nobody's there to do that job. And the disciples have been embroiled in an argument behind Jesus' back, they think, of who's really the greatest, who's the most important in our group, who, who's the most outstanding. And they get there, and now there's no servant to wash feet. Who's going to get down and wash their feet? Well, you know the story. Jesus took off his robe. The master who created the world gets down and washes the feet of his disciples as an example of servanthood. So we're going to see here as we look at communion, communion is really three things. I want to focus on three things. One, it's a time to remember. It's a time to remember Jesus. It's a time to reflect. And it's a time to renew so a communion is time to remember. I mean, Jesus took the cup, bread and the cup right off the dinner table. They, they weren't special elements that he put there. They were the common, ordinary, everyday elements that we, Jesus was using as mnemonic devices, the memory tools to help us remember his great love and sacrifice on our behalf. It's a time to remember Jesus' great sacrifice every time you come to the table. Why did he have to sacrifice? Because the relationship between God and man had been severed by sin. And the shedding of innocent blood was the only way to atone for sin. Jesus paid your debt. It's a time to reflect on the Savior for paying for my sin. I mean, how do you respond? It's no little thing. You have this huge debt that you can't pay, and somebody comes along and just takes it uh, completely away, uh, pays the whole bill. Wouldn't your heart be filled with gratitude? It should. I mean, the right response is to say to Jesus, I'm so sorry that you had to suffer because of me. But thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a time to reflect. Are you following God's plan? Or are you trying to look to work the angles to work out your own plan at the same time? And it's time to renew. Because Jesus, you are the Lord. And you are the Savior. And I commit myself to put you first in my life above all others. So the Passover meal itself was a time to reflect on God's goodness, on God's miraculous rescue of his people in the whole Exodus event. In the book of Exodus, it tells the story of uh, the Jewish people who were enslaved in Egypt being brought out of slavery into freedom and moving towards the promised land. And that picture of the angel of death passing over them and bringing them into freedom is the, really the same picture in the New Testament in Christ, where we go from sin and enslaved to, to sin to pass into freedom to become sons and daughters of God. And so it says in Matthew 26, verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us every detail, but they would have already gathered. They would have said their hellos and howdy-do's and small chat, and then they would have all found a seat, and there would have been a blessing, a prayer at the beginning of the meal. Matthew doesn't mention any of that. He just says, as they were eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. I mean, that's like a bomb going off in the room. One of you, one of you 12 will betray me. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? I think that you, we, most people would ask the question, who? Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Like we're going to get them. And instead, each one began to look at their own heart to say, is it possible that I would be the betrayer of, of Jesus, the one who is the, my Savior and my best friend? Jesus says, one of you will betray me. He's saying the betrayer is among the believers. 
In fact, John 13 says the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Is it I, Lord? Each disciple was doing self-assessment. Have I betrayed Jesus? It's a great question to ask on the Sunday when you're having communion. Lord, is it I? Have I somehow in my, my conversations or my lack of conversations with people failed to represent you well? Have I taken Jesus for granted? Have I been lax in my loyalty? Have I let my love for the Savior grow cold? It's a time to reflect on Jesus paying the price for your sin and to say sorry and to say thank you. Jesus said, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written. In other words, once again, God's timing, it's been written a long time ago. God predicted that the Son of Man goes, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, Rabbi means teacher. Lord is basically saying, You are God. Every disciple, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? You get to Judas, and he said, Is it I, Rabbi? The betrayer is among the believers. You know, he could be right here in the room. Jesus, it would be better for that man if he had not been born. Now, Simon Peter's there at the table, and we know from the book of John, he didn't spend too much deep reflection time looking at himself saying, could it possibly be me? Probably would have been better for him to do so. Instead, he's motioning across the table because John is sitting next to Jesus, and he's going, John, who is it? Ask Jesus. Have him tell you. Who is it? So John leans over and says, well, who are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus says, it's the one that I give this bread to. And he, he dipped some of the bread in, in the gravy, and he hands it uh, to uh, Judas. And it says, Judas goes out, and it's night. It's dark. It's midnight in his soul. He thinks he's gotten away with it, and nothing could be further from the truth. See, in review, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Is it I, Lord? It's a great question to be asking even today because the betrayer is among the believers, might be right here. Is it I, Lord? You've got to ask yourself that question. Is it I? Because Jesus was giving his all, and he forgives sin, and he invites people into relationship, and he includes people who don't deserve it. And who can't earn it? And he says, come, follow me. Why would anybody betray Jesus? Jesus loves you. And Judas wanted Jesus and a little bit more. Wasn't Jesus enough? See, the betrayal by Judas broke Jesus' heart because Jesus loved Judas. Well, it's also a time to renew Verse 26, as they were eating then, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. Now, I was thinking about this. You know, the, the bread is the symbol of Jesus' body, and if, if you don't break it, the bread, I mean, you, it can give you, when it's cooking, you can smell it, which is delightful, but until you, you break it, you don't get to have any benefit from it, do you? You know what I'm saying is you have to break it. You have to destroy it if you're, as you're eating it. So you either have to enjoy it as art or you have to destroy it. Those are kind of your choices. And in some traditions, 
They've made the point that they say, what Jesus gave here was the actual, when, it, when you take it and put it in your mouth, it becomes the actual body of Christ, the actual flesh of our Savior, and uh, the cup becomes his actual blood. This is called transubstantiation. Now, I want you to know here at South Shores, we do not hold to that position. We think that every disciple who was sitting there while Jesus was holding the bread and saying, this is my body broken for you and handed out pieces to them, knew that Jesus was speaking figuratively, not literally. Jesus did that a lot. He said things like, I am the door. Come in and out, find, go through me and find life. I am the vine and so forth. He would give word pictures that would help explain things. So Jesus was sitting right there in the flesh when he took the bread, blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and take, eat, this is my body. And they all understood he's talking figuratively. Augustine, who got to this way before you and I did because he was born in 354 in Algeria, which by the way, he'd be St. Augustine to you and to me. He's one of the early church leaders and he defined both baptism and communion as, quote, outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. In each case, the sign is a visible display that points to a reality different from and more significant than itself. The sign is the thing that points the right direction. Jesus' broken body as he handed to it, this is my body broken for you, was a sign to the greater reality of Jesus being the one who's broken as the salvation uh, for the world and also the one who, who feeds our souls. Now, after the service, if you were hungry and you needed coffee and donuts, you'd go out and go that way. And if there's any luck, there'll be a sign on the way there that says, Donuts. And that'll help point you the right direction. I don't want you to be confused. The sign that says donuts is not a donut. Don't eat it. You don't have to gather around it. You don't have to study the sign. It's something that's pointing you to something greater, better, more delicious. It points to something. And Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body. And we believe that that blessed and broken bread is a symbol, a very powerful symbol, a sign of the way Jesus' body was broken on the cross, sacrificed for you and for me, for your sin and for mine. Wayne Gruden in Systematic Theology said, quote, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we symbolize the death of Christ because our actions give a picture of his death for us. When the bread is broken, it symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body. When the cup is poured out, it symbolizes the pouring out of Christ's blood for us. Jesus is saying, this is bread is broken, just like I will be broken. And when the bread is broken, it feeds and is a blessing. Jesus also, though, said, take and eat. And the whole picture of that we ingest Christ, we bring him into our body we don't just watch, we participate. Jesus is saying, join with me. So we give a little picture of, as we receive him into us, of saying, yes, I'm saying yes to Christ. I'm inviting him into myself, into my life. So every bite you put in your mouth can be a reminder every day of Jesus. By participating, you're communicating without words. I want Jesus alive in me. I want his body to feed me. I want his blood to cover my sin. Yes, Jesus, you are the savior of the world, but best of all, you are my savior and you are my friend. 
Verse 27, it says, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of all sin. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The cup is a picture of the blood of Christ. It's being poured out as the atoning sacrifice to cover a multitude of sins. It's not spilled. There's, I know one song that we sing that talks about his blood was spilt. Spilling indicates an accident, like somebody tripped or, or got their elbow knocked or something. This was not an accident. Jesus' blood was poured out over your sin and mine, the whole pile of all of our sins together, fulfilling the covenant of the law that was given by Moses, uh, by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. But it wasn't an accident. It was a premeditated act of great love. It fulfilled the old way and it started the new way, which is love one another as I have loved you. So communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist has been practiced ever since Jesus said this as a time to remember Jesus and his sacrifice and a time to reflect on the Savior paying for my sin and for me to get to say sorry and to say thank you and time to say, Lord, is it I? Do I being so close to Jesus still try to look the part, but I'm really trying to grasp for something more. Is my heart divided between the Lord's way and my longings, between God's plan and myself push forward? Where do I need to repent and to turn from my sin? And I would invite you into the same type of reflection yourself before the Lord today as we receive this together. And it's a time to renew to say once again, Lord Jesus, you really are the Lord in my life. And I'll put you in charge of everything and everybody and every day and every moment. Let's walk together. See, we believe that this is the table of our Lord. If you love Jesus, if you are a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, you are welcome at this table. Some denominations or faith groups would insist you have to join their brand of religion to receive communion in their church. We, however, believe that this is the Lord's table. It's not ours. And if Jesus is your Lord, then he's inviting you to the table. He's including you here at the table. You are welcome. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're brand new to this. Maybe, maybe it's just a new idea, and you've never come to the point of saying, Jesus, you are God. Forgive my sin. Please come in and take charge in my life. And then become a fully devoted follower. If you've never done that, then this is meaningless to you. Without belief in Jesus, it would be hypocritical to take it, to look the part, but in your heart secretly love something or somebody else more than Jesus. Just leave it alone. And so I invite you to do that. We're going to have a friend of mine, Dave Lamakin, come and play the piano while we receive the elements. And let's pause and pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for being God for caring about us, for coming alive in this world, for teaching us God's truth, and then for giving yourself your broken body, your blood. Thank you for being poured out for us. So as we receive this bread and this cup, may our thoughts be on you and asking for your forgiveness once again and being restored into right relationship with you. Thank you for your love and for your gift. Amen.